We started a new sermon series a couple weeks ago on the Ten Commandments. And we believe these words are as important today as when God gave them first to the Israelites so many thousands of years ago. And in Jewish tradition, the Ten Commandments are also sometimes known as the Ten Words. Because in Hebrew, word can stand for an entire sentence or a phrase. So if you're asking the question, how is life intended to be lived? God's answer is distilled into these ten words. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning you would meet us in your word. You would reveal to us yourself so that we would worship you as you call us to. And we ask that your spirit would allow us to see you clearly, that we would be able to hear you. No one needs to hear from me this morning, but we need to hear from you. And we need to connect with you. And we ask that you would transform us to love you and to serve you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 14, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. One way to think about what it means to be a Christian is Christians are people who love to be told what to do by God. Uh, that feels weird, I, I admit. But let me make the case that as we grow in this, the desire to keep God's commandments, to be told by God what we do, this actually becomes a sign of spiritual maturity. You know, because remember, his laws are given to all of these ex-slaves who were in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years. And he comes to them telling them, I rescued you. I'm not just one of many gods or the God who just set the world in motion and is detached from everything else. But he says, I am your God, a God who is for you, a God who loves you, a savior, not a taskmaster. And your motivation for obeying me, for trusting me, it it all stems from the fact that I have done this for you. I have saved you. Christians are people who love to be told what to do by this God, you see? And last week, we looked at the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And we said this means that God demands a very exclusive relationship with his people. And he's saying he alone deserves worship, glory, and honor. And he is calling us to worship him fully and exclusively. He doesn't want to share worship with anyone else. That's what the first commandment's all about. And today we come to the second commandment where God says, let me tell you how I don't want you to worship me. 
You see? No carved images which you will bow down to and to serve. That is, no idols. No representation of me. And I know some of you are thinking, well, aren't they kind of the same thing, the first and the second commandment? They're similar. But if the first commandment is all about who we are to worship, maybe the second commandment is talking about how we are to worship the one true God. But the second commandment, I I think it's a hard one. It's the hardest one for me to get my mind around. It's the one that has the most written about it throughout history among theologians. And I think it's the least relatable of the Ten Commandments. You know what I'm talking about? A carved image just feels so trivial. I mean, harmless, right? And then it feels so irrelevant to modern life because, like, if I'm thinking about myself, I don't carve anything, okay? Since I don't carve anything, I always thought as a kid, well, here's the one commandment I can actually keep, you know? It feels kind of irrelevant. It's like, what does this have to do with anything? You know, and maybe some of you are artistic and you're thinking, well, it just sounds like God's anti-art. You know, wait, we can't draw anything? You can't paint anything, sculpt anything? I mean, media, you can't do all of that? And many have taught this very fact, and I believe it's actually a misunderstanding of this passage, but some very conservative Christians, Jews, and even Muslims prohibit any representational art or sculpture. So if you've been traveling anywhere, especially in the Middle East, and you visit a mosque, you may have gone in there and noticed these beautiful geometric designs and intricate patterns, and you'll see Arabic calligraphy on the wall. But if you pay attention, you notice they never have pictures of people or animals. You know? Things that are in nature. Why? Because they think this is blasphemy. But if you think about what happens in scripture, God actually commands actually representational art in certain places. In Numbers chapter 21, there's this incident where the people of Israel are once again complaining to God while they're in the wilderness. They're saying, God, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Because we have nothing to eat. It's hot. We're thirsty. And God says, you know what? There you go again. And in your groaning, I am going to send you these fiery serpents, snakes, that will bite you. They are poisonous. And then, of course, the people cry out to God saying, we're sorry, would you please rescue us? And God actually commands Moses to create a sculpture of a serpent made out of bronze and then to put it on a stick and to hold it up where the people of God would look at it and be healed of the bite of the poisonous vipers. That image, by the way, those of you who are in the medical field will know it as a caduceus, right? You'll see it on an ambulance or even on a patch. It means health, healing. But God commanded Moses to create a bronze serpent, okay? So how does that go with this, if you think of it in that way? Or even on the Ark of the Covenant, God orders images of angels or cherubim to be integrated in gold on actually the Ark of the Covenant itself. So I don't think that's what God is prohibiting here. So what is he saying? It isn't the art or the sculpture of things in heaven on, a, on earth in and of themselves. It's idolatry, which is the issue, because verse 5 goes on to explain, you shall not bow down to them 
or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Idolatry is at the heart of the issue. In the first commandment, we're being warned against worshiping any other God. And in the second commandment, we are being prohibited from the false worship even of the true God. You see what's going on here? And this second commandment is not only condemning the idolatry of the pagan world of bowing to statues, but importing this method of worship into the faith and life of the people of God so that we would be warned not to worship God according to these old forms. But God insists that we would worship him without the use of idols, but worship him as he himself reveals himself to us. Now, as we think about this, there's an incident I want to spend a little bit of time on in Exodus chapter 32 that illustrates this whole thing because it takes place actually at Mount Sinai, the very time when these laws are given to the people of God. Remember, in Exodus 20, God verbally gave these commandments to his people. And then what happens is he invites Moses and Joshua to come up to the mountain to commune with him. And they are up there for a pretty long time, 40 days in total. And it is there that God actually writes with his own finger a copy of the law onto stone tablets to give to the people. But we read in Exodus chapter 32, the people are waiting for Moses to come back and they get pretty impatient. It's been 30 days. They're like, well, where is Moses? What's going on? A little longer. Now they get to day 40. They're tired of waiting for Moses and on God. So they plead with Aaron and they come up with a better idea. The people donate gold jewelry. And then it is melted down, cast into the shape of a calf, and is fashioned with a tool, we're told. And in Exodus 32, 4, they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And then Aaron had an altar built for this idol and announced that tomorrow there will be a feast or a festival to the Lord. Now, what I want you to notice is that when Israel builds this idol, this golden calf, they're not intending to worship another god, okay? This is not an attempt to worship Baal or an Egyptian god like Horus or Osiris. They are doing this to worship the God who brought them out of Egypt. And when Aaron announces that there's going to be a festival to the Lord, the word the Lord in your Bible you'll see is all capitalized because it's the Hebrew word for Yahweh. The golden calf was meant to be a representation of Yahweh, the true God, using pagan methods of worship, but now directed at the true God. So they are worshiping God, but in a way that actually God finds offensive. What is offensive about it? I mean, David kind of mentioned it in the beginning of the worship service in our call to worship. You know, it's really frustrating when people perceive you or misunderstand you and think of you in a certain way and you can't shake that off. And here is God saying, when you create an image of me, okay, when you put me in this box, you are always taking something away from who I am. You're emphasizing certain aspects and while others are diminished, 
I mean, think about what is so attractive about an idol that Israel would move into this. They just experienced something very supernatural. Deliverance out of Egypt. They saw God in a pillar of fire. They saw the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. They heard God's voice audibly. I mean, why would you exchange all of this for a golden calf? I mean, what is the temptation and the draw to it? And to us, it seems pretty outlandish because we can't imagine this actually tempting us in any way. Because despite their foolishness and their sinfulness, the Israelites were not stupid. They did not think that the golden calf was literally responsible for bringing them out of Egypt. They had just made the thing. It didn't exist when they were being free from Egypt. They knew that. They aren't dumb. But they understood it to be a physical representation of the invisible God. And they assumed that once they dedicated the golden calf, that God would somehow come to inhabit it and be a channel of blessing to the people of God. You know, they can go physically and sacrifice to it, pray to it, get it to give them what they need. And why a calf? Why, why a calf of all things? I mean, we use animals as mascots all the time in team sports, don't we? Cow bears, okay, Florida gators, eagles, you know, you have badgers, you have lots of... What are we doing when we pick an animal? We're trying to say we're highlighting a characteristic of an animal. And it's no different in the ancient world. They used animals to highlight characteristics of the gods that they worshipped in the ancient Near East. So animals uh, like cows, bulls, and calves are very, very common back in those days because they represented blessing, fruitfulness, success. But again, the real God isn't flattered by this identification. He doesn't welcome it because this is a problem at the heart of all idols. All idols tend to deny something about God. It always conceals more than it reveals. And God himself is diminished. Because think about it. God himself, above all things he has shown to the people of Israel, is that he is a holy God. Yes, he is powerful. He's compassionate, merciful, patient, just, all those things, and love. But he is holy. I mean, this is why he revealed himself in a pillar of fire. It's an emblem, emblem excuse me, of his passion for holiness, his uncompromising perfection. And this is why it says in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He revealed himself clearly as a fire, consuming fire. Which, again, caused us to recognize, here's the biggest problem in our relationship with him. It's not that he's finite and we are infinite, I'm sorry, and we are finite, which is true. It's not that he is stronger and we are weaker. Again, that is true. Rather, we are sinful and he is holy. Those who know the real God know him as a holy God. And this is why when Isaiah has his eyes open to see God in Isaiah 6, he sees the angels praising him and calling to one another, Holy, 
holy, holy, the Lord God Almighty. And the only thing he can say is, I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the glory of God. And he needs God's mercy to cleanse him. What is the attraction of idols? It is to make God actually less than he is. Make him manageable, relatable to us. Minimize all the things that make us uncomfortable with him. You know, we exaggerate the part we like and diminish the other things that we don't like. That is what we do in idolatry, and that is what God is speaking against here. Uh, Philip Ryken, who's president of Wheaton College, um, he said this about idols that I found super helpful. He says, an idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of what he actually is. It is a God who cannot see, know, act, love, or save. This is what this commandment's all about. Do not distort who he is. Don't put all of your hope for blessing and prosperity into something that denies who he actually is. You know, in our own day, we're not particularly given to making images of God, like in the sense of the old days. No one's going out and printing 3D images of God, you know? Fire up your 3D printer, let's create God. No one's doing that. But Ezekiel 14, again, warns against those who set up idols in our hearts. And you can do this with mental conceptions of him. When we make God less than he is, and compromise who he has revealed himself to be. And the phrase that we often revert to in doing this is, I like to think of God as. It's probably the most common way we make an idol. I like to think of God as accepting. I like to think of God as not judgmental, loving, patient, forgiving, but we leave on all the other stuff we don't like about God. See? And when we begin to do this, rather than taking him in in the totality of how he shows himself to be in the Bible, God is saying, you are misunderstanding me. Christian Smith is a well-known sociologist who currently teaches at Notre Dame, and he's done a ton of research on religious belief of young adults and teens in America. And back in 2005, he published a book called Soul Searching, The Religious Lives of American Teenagers. So if you're, think back in 2005, if you were a teen, okay, maybe this describes how you were feeling at the time. But it summarizes over 3,000 interviews that were conducted by he and his team, and they came up with a phrase that described the faith of young people in America. And they said it is moralistic, It is therapeutic, and it is deism. Moralistic because in their interviews, they notice teens are saying, God wants people to be good, good people, as taught in the Bible and other religions, and good people go to heaven. It's all about good or bad. It's about moralism. The second thing they notice is 
deeply therapeutic. And what he means by that is that the central goal of life for all these teens is to be happy, to feel good about themselves. And what they need is God to be involved in their lives to resolve problems so they can be happy. So it's deeply therapeutic. And lastly, it's deism. Yes, God created the world, but he watches from far away and he is uninvolved in our lives. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And Christian Smith asked the question, is this, does this actually fit in with the religion and the institutions that are raising these children? And here's the question for us. Is this a God you worship? Do you believe in being good? Do you believe that God needs to provide you with just happiness? That he should be therapeutic and deistic and essentially that's what it is? Richard Niebuhr in the early part of the 20th century wrote, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without the cross. That's his description of the kingdom of God in America back in 1938. An image of idolatry that eviscerates the gospel and what the scriptures reveal about the nature of God. Sometimes we use idolatry to get rid of God altogether, don't we? This is common when those we say, well, you know what? I can never believe a God who ignores suffering. I can never believe a God who is unjust. I can never believe a God who condemns. You know, and when you ask people, well, what do you mean by that? Usually I'm like, well, I don't think that's what the Bible says who God is. But we have these conceptions, these idols, and we assume God is like this. You know what Ezekiel 33 says about God? He says, and this is him speaking, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they turn from their ways and live. God is saying, do you understand that's me? For Israel, they didn't want to wait for Moses to come down from the mountain. 39 days, 40 days, they thought, well, if he doesn't come, we need to do something. So they made a God who will go before them because they said, for this fellow Moses, we don't know what happened to him. So they made this God for their own protection, wishful thinking, to be led in a different direction. They didn't want to go on the hard path that perhaps God is putting them on and having them wait for him where God would train them and be with them for 40 years. You know, the golden calf itself is lifeless. And you know, what's, what's nice about it, I think it's convenient for us, is it doesn't make any demands on you. It's not inconvenient in any of its demands. And the only thing it wants to do is wants you to do what you want for yourself. That is the temptation. And it says, get what you want out of it, and as long as it provides you success, health, love, victory after victory, then follow this idol. But Jesus says something very different. He says, you know, following me actually means something else. You take up your cross, the cross of self-denial, dependence on God. This longing to say, not my will, but yours be done. 
And what does this passage actually call us to do with our idols? It says, destroy them before they destroy you. We need to cast these things off. Throw off what is ruining you. This is what God's people are called to do. And why? Because it says God is a jealous God. When we think of jealousy, we think of a very ugly characteristic. You know, it's associated with things like envy. It becomes about our ego or our hurt pride. It's love that's replaced by bitterness and anger. But when it is referred to here in relation to God, it emphasizes something a little different. It emphasizes the exclusivity of the most important love relationship. Because God is saying, I love you so much. I want you to have undivided affection for me. Can you imagine this? For those of you who've been in relationships and have gone through a hard breakup, I think you know what I'm talking about. When you have that conversation where the person says, you're wonderful, but you know what? I think we should see other people. It is a devastating statement. Why? Because you actually want someone to say, no, no, no. I want you to want me exclusively, you see? The God of the universe wants your undivided loves. He loves you so much, he will settle for nothing less than your whole self. This is not a problem. It actually is our greatest comfort, my friends. And here's the hard part about this. As, you, as I've been studying this this week, I moved away from, well, I don't carve images, so I guess this is the one that I, one commandment I can keep to moving into man. This is one of the hardest ones actually to keep. Because I make images all the time in my mind of what God should be and what he should do. Our hearts are perpetual factories of idols. And here we are, people who've disregarded God, thought of him wrongly. And he knew that he was, we were going to do this. And you know what's amazing is rather than leaving us to ourselves, the scriptures tell us that he actually came down and lived among us. That although we break his commands again and again and again, even knowing this about us, because this is who we are, he came. He came and lived among us in order to bring him back to himself. And this is the grace of God. God said, make no image of me, knowing that we would, anticipating the image of himself that he would one day give us. You know, that in the Bible, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.15. Thou shalt make no image except the image that God himself will give us. And what could be more beautiful than Jesus? The one perfect life. The one who died for us. The one, the only one who ever kept these ten words. But for the obedience that led him to the cross for us and our salvation. And God is saying this is his glory. This is his holiness. This is his beauty. 
And when this narrative starts to get into our hearts, we begin to be drawn away from all of these idols. And we can begin to see the freedom that Christ has given to us and set us up for. Because his goal is that we would be free from all of these things in order to live for him. My friends, let's examine our hearts, examine ourselves and say, Lord, where are there places where we're chasing after all these things that only you can provide in your son? What do we need to put off and may those things be put aside because we see the beauty of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the one we know we can trust because he has given himself to us. That is our only hope. That is the power by which we can move away from the idols of our lives. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we ask that this morning you help us to see you fully for who you are. We want to turn away from the image we create in our minds of who you should be like rather help us encounter you the one who is holy the one who is just the one who is so committed to us lord that you came and you revealed yourself in the person of your son jesus christ that in him we have life in him we have all that we need for life and godliness and we ask that this morning you would make him more and more beautiful to us so that we would serve you and follow you In your son's name we pray, amen.